Hey, my name is Akash Thakar, and this is Sound Business. This is the podcast where we dive into the mindsets and methods of some of the top musicians, sound designers, or audio creators in the world. We're going to interview everyone from plug-in makers, performing musicians, video game composers, and everything in between, and learn how they run a successful business and how they're making a killer living in the worlds of music and sound. My hope with this podcast is that you can be exposed to the many myriad different ways there are to make a killer living in the worlds of music and sound, and help you realize that there's no one right way to get to the top. And with that, let's get into the episode. Our guest today is Ivo Ivanov. Ivo is a sound designer, modular synth artist, software developer, and founder and CEO of Glitch Machines, which makes incredibly unique audio plugins to help composers, sound designers, and audio pros create some seriously unique sound design and textures. Ivo has worked in a ton of different aspects of audio, from live performing as a full-time keyboardist, music composition, sound design, and has even created custom circuit-bent instruments for people like Richard Devine and Trent Reznor. In this interview, Evo and I dive deep into what it's like to build up a super successful plugin business from scratch, especially without any sort of business plan or inherent know-how or formal education on how to create a business. We also dive into what it means to be a true professional in the world of audio and what that really looks like. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Evo Ivanov. To start off, you when we like first talked a few months ago, it was pretty clear that you've never really had like a traditional career. It doesn't seem like you ever had just the normal of, oh, I'm going to do X, Y, Z, and it's all going to just work out and I'll work at that until I retire and that's it. So I'm curious, what kind of spurred you to always do your own thing? Was it from the beginning? Did you always say like, okay, I can't, I don't want to do the standard thing. I want to be able to make my own stuff. I want to make my own style of music. I want to be a touring keyboardist, whatever of the many things you've done. What was the initial push from inside your head or outside of it that kind of made you do your own stuff? That's a great question. I I think it's, it's probably stems from the fact that I didn't really follow a traditional academic path. I think a lot of people, they go through high school, then they go to college and they kind of have to pick what they want to do. And it, you know, that paves the way for their trajectory in a sense. And I think for me, it was more open-ended because I got into audio at such a young age that the idea was always that I was going to, you know, at the time be a rock star or whatever, but, you know, do something with music that wasn't, uh, tied to academia or doing the sort of traditional getting a degree and getting the salary job kind of path. So I, I think that while, while it had its, you know, its own challenges, it, it definitely allowed me to think outside the box and to be more entrepreneurial and kind of think about what I want to do. That wasn't, you know, just how do I get this one job? And it's actually ironic that I did sort of go back to that path uh, later on in life in my, you know, early mid thirties, when I decided to go back and get my audio engineering degree. Um, but even, you know, through that realized that the traditional path wasn't really going to work for me for a variety of reasons. And, you know, we can dive into that later if you like, but, um, that's essentially the basis of the answer to your question is that I, I just, uh, you know, always had the freedom to kind of think about what I what I'd like to do. Yeah, that makes sense. So considering you didn't go to the traditional academic path until you kind of became an audio educator later, 
when you first started, as you were kind of not held up by the structure of a school system, which is, you know, helpful to tell you what to do day to day and how to practice and all that. What was it you were telling yourself to do that made it so that you gained the skills necessary to actually become a musician, to actually become a sound person? Did you like design your own curriculum? Did you do whatever every day? What was it looking like? It was pretty disorganized for a long time. And, you know, I, I think it's it, it's important for people to to know both in a kind of a general sense and also as it pertains to me in particular, I worked in a lot of restaurants and I worked in a lot of retail jobs before anything audio wise happened. You know, I got into audio and recording and stuff. Oh, I don't know, 13, 14, 15, you know, like I got into guitar when I was 13. And then shortly thereafter, I started to get interested in recording the guitar and got interested in signal processing. And it, just became a huge part of my life, like the driving force behind everything that I did. Every job that I did, I worked as soon as I could work. At the time, it was like, you know, I got a job at like 15 at some pizza place. And I was fortunate enough to be in a situation where I could just use that money to like get gear. So I started to get gear as, you know, as early as I could. But to get back to you know your question, it, it was it was never really very deliberate. Like I I knew that this this is what I wanted to do, but I didn't have a plan. And I think that helped me back, but it also allowed me to really dig into the craft in a way that perhaps if I did have a plan, I wouldn't be able to because I'd be kind of in a hurry to see that you know follow through with that plan. And in in my case, it just happened to be that I worked a lot of random jobs and uh through that ended up buying a lot of gear and you you know making a lot of music and playing in bands and djing and all the things that i did and uh that allowed me to gain a lot of experience but it, it didn't really get me any closer to making any money from doing anything audio related and that's actually why i went back to school now whether or not that was responsible for me eventually making money uh, is a subject in and of itself, but you know it, it's it's important to say like getting into this industry does necessitate some kind of a plan, and I think a lot of people come from the more creative side, which is where I came from, and I started playing piano at like age five, so music was always part of my life. Um, but it just you know I didn't have anybody to like walk me through how to actually do something constructive with that interest or the passion or what whatever we want to call it, and that was a huge challenge for me that I kind of had to, you know, circumvent the long way and, and, and kind of go and, you know, follow through in a very lengthy way that I wouldn't necessarily advise most people to, to take the path that I took. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, it's interesting though, you, you hit on something and kind of dispelled a really common myth, which is a lot of people see someone who's doing well in music, sound, artistry in any way, and will assume that they just kind of knocked a bunch of dominoes over kind of easily like oh they they knew they had to do x then they knew they knew they had to do y and then on and on and on which is almost never the case it's usually just a a constant oozing into the industry and figuring it out as you go and it seems like you kind of have that mindset permeating throughout and i i think i remember last time we talked when it comes to starting your business you also didn't kind of had that mindset. You didn't say like, it's time to start a business. I'm going to make a business plan in a five-year trajectory. And none of, it, it doesn't seem like any of that was a thing that was 
coming up in your mind, which is good to me, honestly, because I see a lot of business people saying like, oh, I don't, but I have to have the perfect plan before I do anything. So when you started, what did that look like? Was it a kind of mirror of everything you had done before where you're just kind of figuring stuff out? Were you selling circuit bent instruments online and had one success and thought, ooh, I'd like to do this more? What did that look like? Yeah, it was a, a little bit of all those things. Um, it, I didn't have any experience running a business, but I did have quite a bit of management experience. And I think that that certainly uh, it, it didn't hurt. But there are a lot of hurdles in the beginning of, of putting glitch machines together, uh, some of which, you know, just kind of evolved naturally. And I just learned as I went. But then some some things really became huge challenges, how to deal with the legal aspects of the company, how to even file and register a trademark, you know, how to deal with a merchant system. Um, there, there are a lot of factors to running a software business that you kind of don't think about and until you're faced with them. And those are some of the biggest challenges. But rewinding a little bit, you know, I started the Glitch Machines brand in 2005. And when I did that, it was more of a creative hobby, really, than anything else. I, I, I made circuit bend instruments and a few friends really thought I, I was doing cool stuff and they encouraged me to sell them on eBay. And I sold them really quickly, which led to making more of them. And at the time, everybody was on MySpace. So I created this MySpace page for Glitch Machines and put up pictures of the stuff and audio examples. And it got just it, a lot of traction really, really quickly. And I got uh, interest from people like Richard Devine and you know, uh, engineers and artists who were really into my stuff, who just messaged me out of the blue. And so the whole thing just evolved in this really natural, but like very rapid way. And it got me thinking like, Hey, this, this could really be a, you know, a company, but even, even as it was sort of evolving, I didn't think about selling software. I didn't think about selling sound effects it was more just like, yeah, I'm making these machines and I, I don't have to work at a restaurant as much or as many hours. And I can maybe put some of those hours into making these things. And that's a lot more fulfilling. It kind of goes back towards the realm of music and sound design, which I was already involved with for a long time at that point. And so it, was, it felt like doing more of what I loved in a sense, even though it was kind of a strange detour. Um, but then in 2010, after I graduated with my degree and my daughter was born a year earlier, things started to shift. And I realized, you know, I can't make these machines out of like an apartment, you know, and I, I for, for forever. And I can't, I can't also afford to like have them mass produced because that's a whole different challenge. And things just started to kind of shift. And, you know, I think it would probably be too long-winded to explain how everything sort of happened at that point but uh, the long and short of it is that I, I essentially realized that there was a certain worth in the glitch machines brand having taken it sort of five years in and established itself within a certain kind of realm of the electronic music and creative industries and uh, I took the opportunity to kind of switch gears in a sense and make the brand more about sound effects 
And and that's where a lot of those challenges really came into play, having to overcome figuring out how to even do that. How do I how do I make a sale through a website? Like there was no, you know, no one to explain that to me. And that's where all those challenges that that you asked about really presented themselves. Uh, and, and even more so a couple of years later when I decided to bring software into that fold. Um, but, it, you know, it, it, the resources are out there, but I think it's such a uh, niche kind of market that it's very diffi- difficult to source that information. Like nobody's out there telling you how to start a software company. You know, they do it in, in the same way that you were talking about earlier, where there's the typical startup model. You know, you get your investors and you get this, this and that in place and you have a certain time frame and you have to make X amount of money in order to get it to the next step, et cetera, or else it just falls apart. And most people go that route because it's a quick way to kind of make it or break it. And if you make it great, then you can take it to the next tier and so on and so forth. Um, you know, it's a typical Silicon Valley kind of approach, but that's not where I was coming from. And I certainly didn't want to get investors involved and all those things. So that's actually, you know, part of the reason why the company has been so successful because I've been able to take the slow road and I've been able to learn things as I go and grow the company organically. And now it's grown into a relatively large brand. Uh, We have 500,000 downloads for each of our free plugins. uh, And we have tens of thousands of customers across the world. And it's, it's amazing how, how far it's come, but I still run it like it's a mom and pop shop in a sense, you know, and that's actually good because it's allowing me to make decisions that keep the brand true to its, its roots and the nature that, you know, Glitch Machines is about so that I don't have to worry about hitting numbers or like having, you know, a board, like board of directors, like telling me I need to do this to instill more sales or whatever that you, you would normally have to do if you're running the brand that, or the company that way. So yeah, I'll stop there, but it's a deep subject. No, it's great. And when we think of bigger or successful businesses, especially in the audio world, normally we think of just the giant ones like East West, Ableton, Native Instruments, like the really, really established ones. But there's a really good case for how successful a small, like you said, mom and pop sort of business can go, especially with kind of scalability of the internet. And it sounds like, from my point of view, it sounds like what you have is also super sustainable, right? It's not something that you're waking up every day thinking, oh God, <laughs> I have so much to do. Maybe you do have a lot to do, but I, I, it doesn't seem like it's a, a dread situation. So I'm curious, like, do, did you have a specific mindset to say, no, nah, this is staying small. I don't need this to explode. Like, do you want to keep it kind of that way forever because it just suits your personality better? Is that why it's kind of not something that you want to explode and say, oh, I need to get investors, I need a board of directors, et cetera? I think it's because the the company is uh, such an unusual case. You know, it, it's the, the brand identity and the products that we sell um, are, are very kind of specific like it's not it's not the kind of company that i think would be any more successful if we started making compressors or like you know branching out into more kind of accessible or mainstream or more generalized kind of products um and so i think yeah there there have been certain 
segues where I've thought about bringing in money to allow me to do certain things. For example, hardware, you know, being involved in the modular kind of world and also coming from making hardware, it seems like a natural thing. And over the course of the years, I've there have been certain points where I've considered doing that. But getting into hardware is a completely different business that has tremendous challenges. And not only getting into the business, but maintaining it and sustaining it. Even just dealing with repairs and distribution, supporting that part of you know the company requires a lot of resources that ultimately eat into the overhead and you know any profits. So it's like, yeah, we could get into hardware. And I have friends that have done it, that have software companies, have gotten into hardware and then gotten back out. And I know most of the people running the bigger kind of modular companies. So I know from the inside what it means to have that kind of business. And it's it's like, yeah, the romantic notion of having hardware, for example, is there. Like I would be into having a glitch machines module, but I know financially what it would entail and it's just not worth it to me. So I'd prefer to just, you know, if it isn't broken, don't fix it kind of, that's that's my attitude about glitch machines. Do I, do I want to grow the company? Certainly, but it is growing, you know, and that's, that's the, the bottom line is like every year it grows more and more and more. Um, I think people have a tendency to want to grow it exponentially or to like, let's make a couple more million next year. And I'm fine with making, you know, another hundred thousand, you know what I mean? Like it, you, it, it, it all just, the more people that, it would require more people to make more money and that those people would require spending more money. And in the, in the end, I think the profit ratios would be the same for, you know, all for nothing kind of in a sense. So this way I can kind of make all of the decisions myself, uh, keep everything growing naturally and organically, put, continue to focus on the core of the brand, which is really, the products and making awesome products and providing really high quality, more or less instantaneous customer service. And those are the things that keep customers happy and people coming back and they build a good brand reputation. And those are the things that are really important. Do I want to have a really amazing YouTube channel with a bunch of artists that come and show how they use our gear and like, you know, do a bunch of events and have kind of a, a lifestyle built around the brand like Native Instruments do, for example. Sure, I do. But the amount of resources that that takes and the amount of time that that would take me to manage and pull me away from focusing on the core of the company, which are the products, may not be worth it. And I don't know if I want to find out the hard way. So that's where my head's at about that. You know, it's like, Let's see, maybe an opportunity will come along. Maybe at some point I'll get an offer from one of the big companies and maybe they'll you know, wanna buy, buy the company, great. You will see what that looks like. But I love doing this and I'd be doing it whether it was through glitch machines or some other format or some other avenue. And uh, that's why I'm not really that eager to make any big leaps because it's like, it's going great as it is. 
Yeah, there's a healthy amount of kind of knowing when to say no with you, which is great. It's something that you don't see a lot of either music people or entrepreneurs kind of do. It's always, oh, I'm going to say yes to everything until this is just a rickety ship that sinks and you can't kind of keep it up, especially with like hiring people so you can make more money so you can hire more people and just kind of keep spiraling upwards until it stops spiraling. Um, so I'm curious for you, when you are... Uh, kind of intentionally, like really intentionally designing all of this. You want to make sure your customers are happy and all that sort of stuff. What are you doing to make sure that one, you're making sure you get the word out, right? You want to make sure people keep knowing about your stuff. And two, that everything you make is making those customers continually happy. Is it market research? Is it something that a big company would do where you sit around a table with a bunch of people and ask each other questions? Or is it gut feeling somewhere in between? Yeah, it's it's a lot more towards the gut feeling. Um, I, I feel like I have my finger on the pulse when it comes to audio technology and software, uh, and especially our specific niche. Like I know what, what's going on. I don't really look at what all the companies are doing. I think that's kind of a fruitless endeavor, at least for me. Um, but you know, I've, I've been trusting myself so far and it's it's been working so far and so it, it goes back to like what i focus on i focus on just doing more of what i'm already doing that's you know not to say that at some point you get to a kind of a dead end where it's like well how many more samplers can we make or how many more delay effects can we make and and you know we'll have to cross that bridge when we get there and we're getting closer every day but on the other side of it I feel like I'm never going to run out of ideas. I have ideas that are bigger than what we're already doing. And so it feels like, you know, I just have to grow into, and, and my co-developer who, you know, is really the, does the kind of heavy lifting when it comes to C++, you know, he and I have to grow into my ideas. And so there's a lot of room for growth there. And, um, you know, when, when we think about new stuff, it's more like what seem, what fits into the product range and what, what do we genuinely feel would resonate with people? But what's also interesting for us? Like, what would we like? And I think it goes back to being musicians, being sound designers. I, that's why I try to kind of be forward-facing when it comes to my modular stuff or like you know, my Instagram or those things. I, I want to show people that there is somebody creative behind this company. It's not some guy sitting in an office crunching numbers. Like that's not the priority. Of course we have to keep, this is all I do to earn an income. So of course we have to keep the money coming in and some decisions to some extent have to be made with, you know, that hat on. But at the end of the day, I'm somebody who makes music. So I'm able to look at products from an end user standpoint. And not a lot of companies do that because of either the fact that there are number crunching people kind of pulling strings, or they're looking at it more from an engineering standpoint, like from the technical merit, but not necessarily the musicality or approachability. And I feel like I'm in that kind of middle ground where I can look look at both of those sides, but, you know, just really look at it from, from like a standpoint of what would I like to use? 
and that's been successful for me so far. And, uh, you know, how that will evolve remains to be seen, but I'm just trying to kind of take it one, one day at a time and let things evolve however they may based on where I've been and where I feel like I'm going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when it comes to having that kind of broad view, it seems like, at least from my perspective, running a business has so many skills. It's not just, oh, we make stuff, right? You you know, have to, you need to know how to market. You need to know how to email people and talk to people. You need to know, and you personally do um, a lot of kind of sharing of your stuff personally on your Instagram. You also do the UI design of your plugins. And you have a co-developer helping with the C++ side. And because there are so many skills involved in running any business, regardless of whatever it is you're making, it's very tempting to think, well, I should also learn that. Oh, I need to learn this new thing. I need to learn this new thing and not delegate at all. So where do you kind of draw that line between saying, focusing, I'm going to just do these things and get someone else to help me with these versus knowing, no, 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 this is worth learning. I need to dive into this too. Where do you draw the line and how do you know? That's a really excellent question because it's a, it's a big challenge for me kind of on an ongoing basis. And I think because of the structure of the company and all of it kind of you know, funneling down to me, uh, I find myself in that predicament constantly where I'm like, well, part of the brand identity or, you know, part of all of the brand identity comes from, it's like my, you know, my kind of idea. Um, And of course, people have contributed to it in various ways. But I come up with all the product names, the concepts for the products, you know, the, the all the concepts for the graphics and everything. And then other people come into that realm to kind of, you know, help me by, by you know, basically doing what they're great at that I'm not so good at. But I found myself in situations where I'm like, well, I'd like to do videos, for example, that are uh, kind of creative marketing videos. So for a moment, I was getting into touch designer and like, you know, trying to learn like Blender and those kinds of things. And, you know, or, or for example, on the design side, I was learning Cinema 4D uh, to do some 3D graphics and stuff. It, it's because I'm, like I said, I'm one of these people who's also creative myself and I'm an artist and, you know, it, I, it's natural for me to gravitate towards making interesting cool looking stuff but at the end of the day there there are only so many hours in a day and i have to make decisions and prioritize things so yeah i you know i bring people in when it makes more sense it makes more sense to bring in a really awesome artist that already specializes in doing just graphics and 3d 3d artwork or even logo design the shirt i'm wearing right now i designed this logo um, but that's like, because I happen to have time and I've been doing Photoshop and illustrator for 20 years, but I happen to have time at that particular moment to create the polygon logo. Most of the time I'll just delegate that to someone and hire them, uh, freelancers or what have you that I have kind of in, you know, my list of, of my, my network, because it makes more sense to let them go do that and focus on, you know, the more important things that I need to focus on in the course of kind of developing a, a, a plugin, for example, rather than taking a certain amount of my day to sort of work on something more fun or this just isn't necessary for me to work on because I'm not the best at it. 
Um, so, so yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think time management is a huge one and it, it, it presents itself in so many different ways because the, to kind of go back really quickly to what you're saying, running, running a company is complex and it, it, it consists of so many different things that you have to manage and so many skills that have to sort of coincide and they don't come naturally to creative people. I've, it's taken me many, many years to develop these skills. And it comes down to even like, you know, I have a, a little list, but just a, I'll, I'll spout off some things just to kind of give people a, a sense. So some of the, first of all, some attributes, you know, discipline, time management, creativity, flexibility, priority management, consistency, diligence, professionalism, accountability, competence, all these things that come into play to be able to manage everything that's going on and stay clear. But then also the skill set, business administration, right? Team management, scheduling, meetings, cooperating with distributors and account managers, uh, creative and technical writing like documentation or like marketing, uh, business correspondence, even just, you know, writing email back and forth, financial management, uh, contracts, writing NDAs, managing all those things, uh, dealing with the legal stuff, the like the end user license agreements and, and other such things. And then of course the marketing, branding, sales, industry awareness, right? You have to be have your finger on the pulse, as I said earlier. Ongoing development of the visual identity. How does how is the brand look overall? You know, how does the website reflect the brand? How do the products and the logos and the graphics and the user interfaces and all those things reflect Glitch Machines as a brand? But also the product development, visual design, sales, merchant system administration, the mailing list, social media, artist PR, industry networking, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's all the audio engineering stuff, you know, which is like 10 other things. Um, and then all the software development stuff, which is 10 other things. So to, to stay on top of all of those things, you, I do most of those things, but there are certain times where it just doesn't, it, it, for a while I was going to learn C++ and in part because I wanted to alleviate some of the stress from my co-developer, uh, but it just didn't make sense. Like I couldn't just push pause on all the things I just listed to go learn C++ for anybody that knows the programming language or any programming, it's an undertaking. And I, you know, it's not realistic to do that in parallel to all of these things going on. So it makes a lot more sense to allocate a budget to somebody else that specializes in that field to do that specific task. And that's how I have to sort of balance things. But uh, to wrap kind of to wrap up that thought, my goal is to stay on the creative side as long as I can. I'm hanging on to it, like, you know, really grasping onto it because that's how I got into this thing in the first place. And the more I get pulled into all the business stuff, uh, the, the less kind of fulfilled I am. And so I prefer to bring, you know, it's like everybody that approaches me that wants to work with us wants to work on the creative side. But what they don't seem to understand is that that's just taking that work away from me. And what I really need are the people that come in and work on all the other stuff so that I can stay on the creative side. Sorry, that was long, long winded, but uh, that hit a lot of different points. No, it's a great answer because I think a lot of people see any company and it's so easy to assume that it's literally just one step of make thing put online 
And there's so much more to it. And especially when it comes to, you mentioned one thing in that list that really hit me, and that was professionalism. And I'm so curious what your view on that is, especially like you just said, people hit you up saying like, oh, I want to work with you, or I'd love to like learn from you or something. They, they want some sort of interaction with you. And I'm curious when people do approach you, regardless of what their discipline is, anything like that, what sticks out to you as very impressive? What's something you love to see in your inbox? And what do you think a lot of you know freelancers or newer people to the field aren't doing enough of when it comes to just reaching out to someone like you and wanting to get like you know learn something from you or work with you, anything like that? There, there are kind of two two different groups of people: people that are already working and are bringing something to the table. For example, graphic artists that would design a logo for me. And then there's people that are like musicians that want to get into sound design or even sound designers that want to do presets for us and those kinds of things. Um, either way, regardless of which group we're talking about, I, a, a thing that I see a lot is a lack of uh, etiquette when it comes to communication. Some people approach me as, uh, you know, their bro. And I think that's fine. Like I'm, you know, a pretty easygoing guy, but like I'm a 45 year old man with, you know, like I, I don't want some 25 year old guy to be like, what's up, bro? Sick, sick shit. You know, like I, it just off putting right away because I think there's a certain etiquette when you're talking uh, to somebody in a professional situation, especially if you're seeking some kind of employment with them. And, you know, I think younger people have maybe a lack of experience that, They've never been in this situation to learn that that's kind of a necessity. So I see that a lot, but also follow through. Uh, if you are working already with me on a project, I think it's inappropriate for me to have to ask how you're doing. I think you should be the one to reach out and tell me how you're doing and just to give somebody regular updates, right? So like, instead of nothing, you know, there's a, a deadline, but I haven't heard anything for three days. On day two, I would have expected, hey, I'm just checking in, just letting you know everything's going fine. Here's where I'm at. No worries. We're on track to hit the deadline. Cool. Awesome. That's kind of what's expected, you know, in a professional realm, I think, in my experience. And that's what I expect. But a lot of people don't do that. They'll just either hit you up whenever it's due. And, you know, usually it's like in the middle of the night on the night of or whatever, or they'll miss the deadline. I've had a lot of people do that. And it's just like, well, it makes it hard to want to work with those people again, because they're taking my time and energy away from what I'm doing to go figure out why they haven't given me an update or why they aren't, why the deadline was missed or whatever it is. Um, so for people that, that are out there working it, you know, regardless of the context or the specific kind of field that they're in, I think communication is a very important thing to take into consideration, not just etiquette, but, you know, also consistency and, and being kind of self-sufficient in that, in that sense. Those are good tips. Those are very, very good tips, especially for people who are like starting out or wanting to kind of branch into a different field, anything like that. I'm going to ask a few more questions. And the first one, you also mentioned time management. In that list and you have a family so it's very common for a lot of business people to be like just alone doing their thing and they have all the time in the world <laughs> but you don't have that luxury right you you have other obligations to take care of so where is that balance do you say all right 5 p.m 
I'm done? Or is there like kind of a push-pull understanding with your family? How does that kind of work? It's always been a work in progress, but we hit a really good balance lately. And it just comes down to, again, communication. My my wife is an incredible partner. She's I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing without her. She's kind of taken on all of the other responsibilities uh, associated with the kids. We have two young kids and a lot of the house chores and things. And of course, I contribute to all of those things. I'm a very involved parent, but she's really the buffer that allows me to sort of concentrate on being at work in my office while all of those other things are unfolding. And whether it be driving them to different classes and all those things, you know, just not to get into all that because it can get in kind of boring for people to listen to probably, but uh, there are a lot of different things associated with parenting and, you know, uh, being able to be down here and concentrate on my work. Yeah, it does. It does necessitate having a kind of a, a, a certain schedule put into place, but that schedule is really flexible. And that's the nice thing about the situation here too, is, I don't have to go somewhere and drive off to some office like my studio that I'm sitting in now. We built it in our basement. So it's in my home. I get to come down here with a cup of coffee and just, you know, log in and do my stuff and start working. And uh, that makes it really, really easy because I've had a lot of jobs, you know, where I commute an hour and a half one way. And that takes a lot of time out of your day and a lot of energy. And then that's less family time. And I, you know, take a half an hour break for lunch around the same time every day. So I go up, check in with everybody, have my lunch, you know, chat for a few minutes um, and then come back down. And then they know that I'm busy until dinner time. And we just have that kind of communication and agreement set in stone now. So there's the challenges really aren't there, but that's also because of our circumstances in, you know, at present which haven't always been this great. There have been times where I didn't have a studio when Glitch Machines was first starting out. So I couldn't even edit stuff in peace because the kids were, you know, toddlers at that point. It was a lot more chaotic. And so I would go to the local library and on Saturdays, my wife would have the kids and I'd be there for 10 hours editing samples in headphones, you know, with my audio interface set up and everything like in the library. I mean... I'd go and I, when I was uh, the director at SAE, I'd have to open the school in San Francisco at like 9 a.m. So I'd wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning just so that I would have a couple of hours every morning to work on my stuff before I'd have to go to my job. You know, and then again, do the whole day, come home, see my family for like 30 minutes because it was so late already and they're young kids. So they go to bed at what, six, seven, you know, and then I'd have a couple hours in the evening to do more audio stuff and then rinse and repeat, you know? So it was a lot of grinding through a lot of those initial years, but now we own a home. I own the studio. It's a tiny space, but it's like, I don't need anything else. And uh, everybody sort of works with me to facilitate my working environment, uh, and, and there's a lot of flexibility there. And I could go to the store on a Wednesday if I need to in the morning and take a few hours out or I can do this and that. And that that's also one of the nice things about running your own company is you can make those changes to your schedule and it could be flexible. 
it's a lot of communication. And uh, I spend a lot of time with my family. I, I think it also comes from having, I'm, as I said, I'm 40, I'll be 46 this year. So I spent a long time going out and having a social life and going to shows and playing at shows and partying or whatever it is. And now it's like my social circle is tiny and they're also all spread around the world. And I don't really go out. I don't go like have a social thing going on all the time. And that really contributes to the freedom of being able to work and spend the time with my family. And then maybe once every three months, I'll like meet someone for lunch, literally. And especially like with COVID, that's been even less so. But that's also why I'm able to sort of stay focused and uh, get a lot done. So I'm curious about a broad question then, kind of zooming out a bunch before we start wrapping up is now that things are humming, you know, you like you said, your business is growing. You have a ton of products out at this point. People love them. You have 500,000 downloads for your free plugins what's kind of on your mind now? Like what's the whisper in the back of your head as you're walking around your house of like, okay, yeah, it's time to do this. Like what's, what's kind of poking at you constantly? What's, what's staying in your brain most of all? The biggest thing is the kind of growing pains of growing the company in a way where I, at some point I feel like I have to bring people in to do certain things that I just won't have time to do. I can't do everything. You know, and it goes back to all the things I listed earlier. Like I can do a lot of those things, but at the end of the day, it's taking more and more time because we have more and more customers and more and more things growing. And I really just want to stay latched on to the creative stuff. And I know that to some extent, that's maybe wishful thinking. Part of running a company means kind of having to grow out of those things to some extent. But I think that the company is hinged on my creativity also. So there's a certain value associated with that. And so I, I think one of the things that's sort of eating at me, as, as you mentioned, is, yeah, just like, how does that look? What does that look like? At which point is that, are we going to pass that threshold? And what does that mean? Does that mean I have to bring on like legit employees or does that just mean I bring more freelancers in and how, what, how much time is that going to take away uh, from what I'm working on and just in terms of managing those people or coordinating things and communicating with them and so on. Um, and then on the other side, the other thing that's kind of on my mind lately is that I, I think we really need to make a bigger product than just a plugin. And I have some ideas and I don't want to get too specific, but I, I, I think that's kind of the direction that we're talking about going software wise is something, you know, maybe not a DAW, but something bigger than just a plugin. Um, because I, I think that could kind of tie a lot of our products together in a way, build off of our technology uh, for la lack of a better term. And also be something we can sell for more than, you know, 50, 60, 70 bucks and that we can kind of evolve over a longer period of time. A lot of people want me to do hardware and I'm just not going to be convinced to do that anytime soon for reasons I already mentioned. Um, but that's always seems to be a revolving topic that people approach me about. 
so that's kind of, uh, yeah, that, those are the things that I'm really thinking about in the back of my mind. How, how can we keep this growing? But like, what does the company look like five years from now? What does it look like 10 years from now? Are we just going to keep making plugins ad nauseum or do I want to do something bigger or something different? And uh, yeah, like I said, there, there are a lot of ideas there and just kind of seeing like, and, and with that also to sort of wrap up what not to do, <laughs> you know, it's just as important as what to do. A lot of people approach me all the time with all these ideas of what to do. And it's like, well, those are actually the things I've already assessed I don't want to do for reasons X, Y, and Z. Um, but people don't look at things from, they look at things from their own perspective in, in, in that context, you know? So it takes a lot of convincing people that like, no, I, I already know why I don't want to do that, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Speaking of knowing why you're doing what you do, I'm very curious when you were first starting out and that could be as a touring musician, that could be when you're circuit bending, whatever starting point you want to pick. I'm curious how you defined success and now how do you define it? Like how has that changed over time? It just depends on the context you're looking at it in because I, I used to look at it as like a, a general kind of popularity, like, Oh, I'm, you know, people know me for doing music and, you know, there's, and I'm like the music guy and that's like, you know, successful, but I didn't really associate it with like a fiscal success. You know what I mean? Like, and, and I don't think that I do that still just because of the type of person I am. I'm not really like ranking our success based on like how much money we we're making, but to some degree as like, a you know, someone with a family and, you know, all the life that I have, like in a company um, kind of hanging over my head, so to speak, I, you can't help but to look at the numbers and to sort of measure things accordingly. So, yeah, I think now my perspective, from this perspective, from this vantage point, if you will, I can't help but to measure our success based on like how many customers we have or how much we made this year over last year or like, you know, those kinds of things. And on a more philosophical side, I think um, I'm more successful than I could have ever imagined because I get to do what I'm really passionate about and what I love and sustain a, a really, you know, reasonably good income doing so. And I have the freedom to make all the decisions behind that, you know, every endeavor associated with that. So to me, that's already like beyond success The you know, my, my wife and I always have this conversation. If things literally stayed where they are today, like we just made this much money, we had this many, whatever it was, we would be happy. That's a great wholesome mindset to have about this. I love it. So last question before we wrap up, where can people find out more about you and Glitch Machines and get your good stuff too? I have a personal prof, like a portfolio website where all of my work um, can be found. It's evenovsound.com. It's just my last name, I-V-A-N-O-V sound.com. Um, I have my music up there, my modular stuff. You can see all of my sound design projects because I do a lot of stuff less so recently, but I've done a lot of stuff for other companies and it's all on there um, as well as pictures of my circuit bent instruments and 
all that sorts of stuff. And then, of course, our website, glitchmachines.com. And uh, on my, uh, on my uh, Even Off Sound website, I also have a link tree link up kind of on the bottom right where the social links are. That's where you'll find other interviews and other things that just kind of, you know, don't go anywhere else really. But any recent things that are associated with work that I've done are also linked there. So those are the best places to find out about my, my work. Awesome. Thank you so much, Evo. This is amazing. Thank you so much for having me, Akash. That's the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening as always. And considering I work in the world of video game, music, and sound, and so many people are always asking me how they break into that field, I have a newsletter set up for you. So if you want to learn how to make music and sound effects for video games and actually be paid to do it, just go to bit.ly forward slash soundbizpod. Sound B-I-Z pod. And that newsletter will set you up with two free courses and a bunch of free ebooks and even sound effects that'll get you set up and teach you how to work in the world of video game, music, and sound. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.